with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 2, the second chapter of the book of Acts, and just close, uh, or rather just hold your spot there, Acts chapter 2. And while you're turning there, I want to make mention and introduce a series I'm going to start next Sunday. Today is just kind of a standalone message in a sense, uh, but next Sunday we're going to start a brand new series, and uh, a, a series really deals with a couple of topics that I've dealt with, obviously, like just through the years in a variety of messages, but never dedicated a specific series to it. And so next Sunday we're going to start a series entitled Eternity in the Balance, and we're going to be looking specifically at what Scripture teaches about heaven and about hell. And so we're going to look at the implications of those two things. You know, it's amazing the variety of opinions that people have, even within the body of Christ, right? Even within the local church, a variety of opinions of what heaven is and what hell is and what those implications are. We're going to just sift it through Scripture and let the Bible speak for itself for the most part. And, uh, and then yet, if the Bible is true in regards to what it says about heaven and about hell and about eternity, then there are gigantic implications that we have to be aware of, we really, really have to, have to be mindful of in our lives. And so that's where we're going to start next Sunday. I am really excited about that series. I hope that you'll plan to be here and uh, be here consistently. You'll plan to pray for that as well and uh, invite folks with you uh, because we're going to be looking at real, real important topics through the weeks that we'll be in that series, Eternity in the Balance. So starting next Sunday, Acts chapter 2 today. Well, let's just go ahead and start off right out of the shoot, and we'll give you something to write down, a little principle we're going to sift through the passage we're going to look at this morning. And the simple principle is this, that you never outgrow the basics. You never outgrow the basics. does not matter whatever area of life we're looking at, this principle applies. You never outgrow the basics. In the world of academics, for example, right, it doesn't matter if you have a Ph.D., uh, regardless of, of, of you know, level of, of uh, academic accomplishment, you're always going to apply what you learned in kindergarten, first grade, second grade, elementary school, right? You're still going to learn the basics or, or apply the basics of grammar and the basics of math. I mean, all those basics you learned as a child, you're going to apply all the way through any PhD program that you may be a part of. If you look in the world of architecture, right, you could build the biggest, most majestic building that's ever been built by the hands of men, and it's still going to be built on a very basic foundation. I've never been a builder never been a construction person. I have a sneaky suspicion there's probably a a class called Foundations 101 somewhere in construction school, right? And and no matter how big the structure may be, it's going to be built on a very basic foundation. You're not going to outgrow or navigate away from the basics. In marriage, you know, you've got the basics of love and respect and treating one another with love and respect. You never get to a place. Raise your hand if you've done this, okay? This will be engaging. Uh, If you've ever come to a place where you've said, you know what, we've been married for 10 years, 15, 20, 30, 50 years now. We don't really need the basics anymore. You know, we don't need to apply love and respect and kindness and gentleness. We don't need the basics. We've moved beyond that. Anybody ever done that, right? Anybody? No? Okay. So you never move beyond those basics in relationships either. I mean, they they apply. You never, ever, ever outgrow the basics. Athletically, right, you're still going to apply the same basics. If you're a baseball player, you can be a professional baseball player, and you're still going to apply what you learned when you were playing t-ball at grade school baseball in fielding and throwing and batting and base running. I mean, you never outgrow the basics. So when we then move all of that into the arena of church, what does that look like for the body of Christ? What does it mean for a local church then to live by the basics? What does it look like for a local expression of the body of Christ? We'll use ours as an example. What does it look like when we apply the basics? And let me even go a step further. What do the basics even look like for a local body of Christ, for a local church? 
What are the basics? There are kind of two categories. One I'm going to hit briefly, the other I'm going to camp out on. The first category of the basics really is the basics of what we believe. I'm just going to kind of brush over this for a moment. We deal with this in different ways every Sunday. But what are the basics that we should believe as a local church, as the body of Christ? Well, there are certain basics that relate to who God is, right? The Bible teaches us that there is one God. There are not a plethora of gods. There are not a multiplicity of gods. There is only one God who's revealed himself in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We see that throughout the pages of Scripture. Some areas it's a little more prominent than others, but one God who's shown himself in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Bible also teaches, however, that God is our creator. He's created us. And even though we may have good intentions a lot of times, and even though we live a good life, we have all sinned, we've all fallen short of who God is and of his perfection. And as a result of that, that sin has separated us from God. It's created this huge gulf between us and our good intentions and God and his perfection. And so what the Bible tells us, the basics, is that even in that condition, when we were so far away from God, God loved us so incredibly much that he chose to absorb the cost himself. He didn't say, jump through a bunch of hoops, and then I'll let you know me. He didn't say, go to church for X amount of years in a row without missing a Sunday, and then I'll let you into heaven. He didn't say it works that way because it doesn't. He said, rather, I'm going to send a re- I'm going to send a substitute for you. And this substitute is going to be my son, Jesus who's going to come and he's going to live a perfect life. He's going to die on the cross and he is going to ultimately pay your sin debt for you. Three days later, he's going to rise from the dead. And it's only through a relationship with him, when you turn from your sin that has caused all the mess to begin with, and when you place your faith in Christ, trust his work on the cross to bring you forgiveness, as you follow him, then you're going to have a relationship with me, God says. And we believe what the scriptures teach, that those are the very basics. And so moving out of kind of what the basics are regarding what we believe, let's spend more time, really the rest of our time this morning for the next 20 minutes, 25 minutes or so, let's spend a little time looking at what the basics are regarding what we're called to do. Because God has put us together as a church. He has given us very, very clear instruction in scripture, not only about what we're called to believe, but about what we're called to do. And that's what I want us to focus on specifically. So before we even answer that question, what is the church called to do? We have to take a step back and we have to ask another question first. What is the church to begin with? What exactly is the church? Because we use all these different uh, expressions to, to, to show what church is to us. A lot of times for many people, the church is a building, right? The church is a place that we go. But from Scripture, what we see is church is a people. It's always dealt with as people. It's always dealt with as people that have been called out of the world into a relationship with God. So let's take a look first before we jump into Scripture at what the church is to begin with. Whenever we read in the Bible, what we find is, is that God's plan has begun had begun all the way back in the garden and extends all the way through the remainder of history. And what we find in the New Testament specifically is that after Jesus had come and after he had given his life on the cross and after he rose again from the dead, what he did was he made a promise. He told his followers, he said, I'm going to go back to the Father. I'm not going to be here forever. I'm not going to be here with with you through your whole life. I'm not going to be here for you to reach out and touch or, or to put your arm around me. I'm not going to be here to speak words of comfort to you always. I'm going to be going back to the Father. I'm going to leave you, but I'm not going to leave you alone. And what Jesus told the early followers was, when I go back to the follower to, to the Father, 
I'm going to send to my followers, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit who will indwell you. He's going to take residence in you. All right? It's not going to be like the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come upon certain people and would equip them for certain tasks. But Jesus would say when the helper comes, he is going to be with you. In fact, what we see in Scripture is that it's the Holy Spirit who indwells those who have a relationship with God. And so we are never at a place, just like we, we just sung, we are never at a place where we can say we're all alone as Christians. God is always with us in the person of the Holy Spirit. And so in Acts chapter 1, what we find is that Jesus has gathered his believers, mainly his disciples, remaining disciples at the time. He's gathered them together, and then he ascends and goes back to the Father, just like he said. What we find in Acts chapter 2, however, is that his promise comes true. And the very Holy Spirit that Jesus promised would come shows up. And when the Holy Spirit comes, he comes in a way that is unmistakable, He comes in a way that validates the message of Jesus that he is the only way to salvation. And the Holy Spirit comes in a way that would change everything from that day forward. The believers would be gathered together and we find that as they've gathered together and the Holy Spirit comes, that from that day forward, we begin to see not an institution, we begin to see a movement take place. See, even in Jesus' day, there were those that tried to make following God into an institution. They were called the Pharisees. In Jesus' day, you had this group of, of people, the Pharisees. Listen, these Pharisees that would try to, 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 to put God into a box and would make a relationship with God into this, uh, this, this formal structure. They gravitated away from what God's intent was all along. And ever since that time, we've seen the church move more and more towards an institutional mindset. Think about that, right? Through, through the years, we've seen that the church become this iconic figure, right? And, and it's just an institution. We even sometimes fall into the trap of seeing the church as an institution when we say things like this. Well, you know, there is an issue in this community. We, we think the church ought to do something about this. Right? And what is our mindset when we say that kind of stuff? We're, we're saying that this institution called the church somehow magically and mystically gets things done, right? And we forget that the church is not an institution. The church is a compilation of people that have been called out and redefined. God has brought us out of the world, and he's given us a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And as we place our faith in him, God brings a variety of people from every direction with all different backgrounds and all different mindsets, and he gives us that one common thing, that relationship with Jesus. And what we saw happen in Acts chapter 2 is that there were a variety of people, we'll see this in a second, a variety of people that had come to a relationship with Christ and a movement started. A movement that God was firmly behind, directed and driven by the Holy Spirit himself. And it's going to be these new believers, these little pocket of believers that find themselves now in the middle of a Roman Empire where worship of the emperor was the norm that are called to live out their faith in the public square, to live out their faith on the public, in a public arena, to live out their faith with a whole world watching, to where they weren't just going to say certain things, listen, but to where they were going to be expected to live in a way that put God on display. And what we'll find here is that these early believers that followed Jesus, <clears throat> that even though they had a relationship with God that would never end, it wasn't always easy. And the world wasn't always embracing of them. 
but rather they would find difficulty, they would find challenge, they would find hardship, and yet they would find that God was with them all along as they began this movement that we know today. So let's jump into Acts chapter 2. Let's begin in verse 41. We're going to read through a few verses here, add to it as we go. And we're going to find what were the basics then for this early group of believers, not just the basics of what they believe, but in what they did. What were the basics that they never outgrew? What were the basics that they applied that has allowed the church to continue now for 2,000 plus years? Well, let's find out. Acts chapter 2, let's begin in verse 41. So then, those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Let me pause there for a moment. What's taking place here? Jesus, as I said, has ascended back to heaven. The Holy Spirit has been sent. They're in the city of Jerusalem. You've got the disciples. There are 11 now, not 12. Judas has already bailed out, jumped ship, betrayed Christ. So you've got 11 of the original disciples together. They have assembled now. The Holy Spirit has come. Peter, who not long before this had denied even knowing Jesus, has been given boldness to proclaim the gospel. And so here's Peter standing in the midst of a vast multitude. And as he proclaims the gospel in Acts chapter 2, the message that Jesus came and died and rose for our salvation, 3,000 people, the Bible tell us, in verse 41, came to know Christ. Do you think every single person who heard Peter preach Place their faith in Jesus? Probably not. So this would have been a huge number of people for 3,000 of them to actually yield their lives to Jesus. And so Peter now preaches, 3,000 come to Christ. The church has been born. This movement has begun. Verse 42, and they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. All those who had believed were together. They had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. It was just an amazing movement that had begun. Nothing the world had ever seen before. And the Bible lays out for us right there in that passage what it was that they did to apply the basics. This past week, you know, we had this uh, massive snowstorm, avalanches all over the island that was taking place. Roofs caving in, you know. And um, how many of you were tired of it by the end of that day, by the way, ready for the snow to be gone? Okay, just curious. My kids were amongst that number and their dad as well. And so uh, more snow maybe this week. Is that what I've heard? More snow maybe on Wednesday? I hear a couple of feet perhaps. Um, maybe so dig your dig your underground basements not here you know but maybe we might see some snow flakes so uh so so the snow fell i'm i'm sometimes a cheapo so uh i decided you know i don't want to have to pay for firewood so i got my trusty chainsaw right that i got two hurricanes ago and uh decided i'm going to go right around the island we'll find me some wood that's down i'm going to cut me up some firewood so uh so i got my chainsaw went out and uh i found a limb that had been cut i guess by by a power company or something it had been on the lines where it's just laying there on the side of the road so i pulled my truck over and i uh, got my chainsaw cut it up in some pieces took it home feeling really really good about myself by the way felt like a lumberjack actually and uh i thought about buying a plaid red shirt but i didn't and so i got home and it was already i got my my mall right and uh went out my, my accent so i went out there i got the, the wood set and, I, and I, I'm thinking, this is just like living out in Alaska. You seen that, that show on TV, 30 Below or whatever it is? You know, it's like, I'm like, sustenance living. I'm living off the land. And so I get my, get my mall there, and it's like, wham! 
all of my feelings fell out of my mouth. I think. So, uh, <laughs> so, so I learned something really, really quickly then. Either that wood is harder than a brick, all right, which there's a lesson there, I'm sure. Not fit for a sermon, I guess, but about picking up wood on the side of the road. But, or maybe what I was using to cut was not quite sharp, right? Yeah, not, not quite sharp enough. So if I could bring, let's just say, for example, I bring, I bring an axe in here, okay, and I hold it up. There are going to be a few components that make that axe what it is. There's going to be a long handle. Maybe there's going to be a rope on the end to slide over your wrist, right, so you don't lose a grip. It'll just help you to, to keep a grip on there. You're going to have, you know, uh, a, a piece of steel on the end of it. It's going to be, you know, fixed there somehow, maybe driven in by a wedge or whatever. But it's going to be that piece of metal that's going to ultimately come down to a fine blade, an edge. And it's that edge that's going to make that instrument what it is. And when that instrument loses its edge, listen, it loses its capacity to accomplish the purpose behind its creation. If it loses its edge, it loses its ability, its capacity to accomplish the purpose for which it was created, for which it was made. Here's what I want to present for us to chew on for just a moment. That when you look at the local church today, especially in this country, I think it's very easy to see from Scripture that we have been created for a reason, for a purpose. But when you look at the local church today in its local expression, in this comfortable nation in which we live, my opinion is, is that largely the church has lost its edge, right? We have begun to lose our capacity to accomplish what God created us to accomplish. We have lost our edge in a variety of ways. One way, I believe, is that we have allowed sin to take root and we treat it like our family pet right? We see nothing wrong. We see very little wrong with living a life of grace and praising God on a Sunday. And yet on a Monday, we don't have any issue with ripping people off to make a buck. We don't have any issue with telling lies to advance ourselves. We don't have any issue with living differently Monday through Saturday as long as we show up on Sunday. And then we wonder why we don't have that sense of deep joy and deep peace and fulfillment in our lives, and we wonder why God seems to use everybody else except we ourselves. We've lost our edge because we allow sin to take root in our lives that goes undealt with. We've also lost our edge as a church today in this nation in which we live, in my opinion, because we have become more focused on we ourselves than on he himself. We become more focused on us. Think about your next visit to the local Christian bookstore, right? How many books are going to be written to help you to enjoy a better life, a more fulfilling life, a, 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 a life that's filled with blessing, that's going to be more about you, as opposed to how many books are going to be written and put out on the open market, right, that magnify who he is for his glory, right? Much of the focus today is on us and on what we need and on what we want as opposed to who he is and what he desires from us, his creation. We become more me-centered rather than Christ-centered. But I think there's another way as well that the church today has lost its edge, and that is that we have become inward-focused as opposed to outward-focused. We focus on how we can grow ourselves. We want bigger budgets. We want more buildings. We want bigger numbers. We want to make ourselves look better so that we feel better about ourselves. And really, in a sense, yes, those things may be important. 
However, I think what God really would desire is that we will be willing to treat this time like a big old pep rally to grow ourselves and to deepen our faith and to strengthen ourselves and to encourage one another so that when we answer the second half of our call, the second half of our, tra- uh, of our salvation, that we go out into all the world, that we do it with effectiveness. That we not, as a local church, just sit on the inside and soak everything up, but rather we leave this place and we go out into the world for which Jesus died with a message and with conviction and with a life that looks different for the sake of other people's eternities. And in a lot of ways, I believe the church today has ultimately lost its edge. But when you look in the first century, when you look at the early church born in Acts chapter 2, they didn't lose their edge very easily. They had a sharp, razor-sharp edge. They had a closeness to God about them. In fact, let's move back through that passage again uh, uh, and take a look and see what are some of the things that I've highlighted that helped them to have the edge that they had, that helped them to be effective, and ultimately, what were the basics that they did? Let's bring that passage up again, Acts chapter 2. It says in verse 42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. The apostles there, I think, would have been a reference for the most part to those 11 of the original disciples. Again, the church is just birthed, right? You don't have a ton of new believers. Probably the ones that were most apt and most fit to begin teaching Scripture would have been those who walked with Christ, right? So these 11 disciples, more than likely, were primary teachers. Those who were being added, those who were coming to Christ, starting with this 3,000, were devoting themselves, it says, continually to the apostles' teaching. And it wasn't just whatever they felt like teaching. It was the teaching of the Old Testament scriptures, and it was the teaching of the person, the life, and the ministry of Jesus. As the church would grow and as more of the New Testament would be written, that would be added into the teaching as well. But they devoted themselves. It wasn't a haphazard mentality of, well, you know, i got to i got to work a little bit extra next week because i got some bills to pay and, you know, other stuff's going on. we got a ball game coming up in a couple of days and, you know, we'll make it back down there when we can. It wasn't that mentality. These people were living in a, in a world that would eat their lunch. People were dying for their faith <laughs> right there in their, own, in their own community where they were living out their relationship with God. People were dying for the very thing they were looking to do. And so they continually committed themselves to the teaching of Scripture. It goes on to say that they also continually devoted themselves to fellowship. It wasn't something that happened accidentally. It was an intentional. It was almost as though we're in this world all by ourselves. The Holy Spirit lives within us, but we are, we are way outnumbered, right? And if we're going to hold true to the teaching of God's Word, if we're going to stay uh, clean in our walks, and if we're going to stay close to the Lord, if we're going to stay encouraged, then we have to spend time together. There was a unity that was amongst them. They devoted themselves to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, probably a reference to the celebration of the Lord's Supper, and they devoted themselves to prayer. Prayer was like like the backbone, the spine that ran all the way down the work of God. It it was their connection to the Lord, that even though Jesus wasn't there for them to, to reach out and touch, and even though the Holy Spirit was there with them every moment of every day, they still couldn't hear His voice, they still couldn't see Him with their eyes. It was prayer that was that unbreakable communion with God, and the early church was fiercely devoted to it, fiercely devoted to prayer. And again, it was that backbone, that spine that ran all the way through the work of God. Verse 43, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. God was at work. God was moving. Many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. The next slide, as you move a little bit further, 
It says, and all those who had believed, right? All the the followers of Christ were together. They had all things in common. So radical and so extreme was this. It says in verse 45 that they even began selling their property and their possessions. And they were sharing them with everyone as anyone might have need. They weren't trying to meet the needs of the world, right? This was not one gigantic benevolent effort to try to fund the world. Jesus himself would say, the poor you will always have with you, right? You can't meet every need in the world, but it's almost as though God is saying, but for those who are part of the community of faith, you're different. You're different. Love each other. Support one another. Pray for one another. Link arms and work together for the advancement of the gospel. Meet one another's needs. Because who you are is not who the world is. And what you've been given is not yours. God would say it's for my glory. It's for the advancement of my kingdom. And these would be the basics. You know, it's a buzzword today, I guess, in ministries, you know, values, and even in the corporate world. I mean, what are, your, what are the values? Those of you that work for companies, corporations, I mean, even if you're a single-person business owner, you, you probably have a mission statement, a list of corporate values, right? What were the corporate values? Let's bring that up again if we can. What were the corporate values of the early church? It's probably everything that I highlighted. <laughs> That's probably their core values. Hey, what, what are your core values? Fellowship, unity, outreach, prayer, scripture. <laughs> That's what drove them. Those were the basics. What, what happens if you navigate away from the basics? Train wreck, grease fire, church falls apart, church becomes center, centered upon themselves. What have you done for me lately, God? Mentality. What happens when you hold true to the basics? I don't know. In a weird way, families get stronger, people get saved, communities get impacted, lives change. Never outgrow the basics. And it was this early church that had an edge, that it didn't matter if they were in the presence of an emperor or a king. They were going to still continue to proclaim the message of the gospel if it cost them their life. And they did. And all 11 of those remaining disciples would die for their faith. What about John? You know, John, he, I thought he died on the Isle of Patmos. Yeah, he did for his faith. <laughs> you never outgrow the basics. So here we are 2,000 years later, and God has brought into a relationship with himself many of us. By his design, we're here in the same place. Are we a perfect church? Absolutely not. You're not going to be perfect this side of heaven, and none of us are. But yet the call is still the same. He's called us to himself, and the command is still the same. He sent us into the world. It goes all the way back to what Jesus would say before he would ever be crucified, John chapter 17. Take a look on the overhead at what it says here. This would be his prayer to the Father. Jesus would pray even before his crucifixion, speaking to the Father. He would say, but now I come to you, Father, And these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. He's speaking of believers. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world even as I am not of the world. 
I do not ask you to take them out of the world. See, Jesus' mentality, God's mentality, is not like the monks of whatever century that was, 6th, 8th, 10th, whenever that was. I'm sure somebody will correct me on the connection card. But whenever the monks lived, right, that was not the mentality to build a cave and find a nook somewhere in the side of a mountain and shield themselves from the world, right? That was not the mentality. Jesus says, I, you're not of this world, but he prayed to the Father. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world. No, this is where they need to have the greatest influence. Influence. This is where they're supposed to be salt and light. This is where their voice needs to be most greatly heard. I'm not praying, Father, you take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Let them not forget the basics. Let them not lose their edge because of sin. Let them not think that it's all about themselves. They're not of the world, even as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them, he says, in the truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. You, Christian, are part of a movement. This church is not an institution. It is a movement that tracks all the way back to the early days of Acts chapter 2. In fact, in the heart of God, it tracks even further back from there. Even in the book of Exodus, God would call his people a congregation deep in the Old Testament. And here you are today. And the question that has to be answered is... Am I going to see this as a place where I go, as a box that I check, or am I going to be a part of a movement where God has called me first to himself in salvation, and now he sent me into the world to the point to where the, the, the team that my child plays on is not by accident. The place where I work I don't have those co-workers by accident. The street that I live in, the complex that I live in, in an apartment or the condominium, the places that I navigate, the places where I shop, the people that God puts in my path, am I willing to see that's not by accident, but rather they are placed there because I'm a part of a movement. And God wants me to use my authentic, genuine, surrendered life to be salt and light to the lives of those around me. And when it gets hard... And when we need encouragement, and when we need prayer, and when we need unity, and when we need fellowship, and when we need scripture and teaching and, 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 and truth, thank God that he gives us this thing called church so that we remember we're not in it alone. We're in this together. You know, there's a part of Jesus' prayer that he would pray. John chapter 17, verse 21, we'll bring it up and begin to close. And I love what he says in his prayer, that they may all be one. One body, one faith, following one Savior, with one message, the gospel, with one call to go into all the world. You know, it's funny that in Acts chapter 2, verse 46, bring that passage up. It's interesting how Luke describes in verse 26, day by day, continuing with one mind. One mind. First Baptist Church of the Islands, we are part of a movement that God has called us to and equipped us for. And the only thing that lacks and that begs to be answered is are we willing to answer that call? Are we willing to be the people God's called us to be? And are you willing to be the person God's called you to be, living an authentic life in a fallen world, continuing his work throughout history that others might know him through Christ. Let's pray.
with heads bowed and eyes closed this morning, two groups of people here today, those that don't know Christ and those who do. There's really no other category that matters any more than those. For those who don't know Christ, you, you may know about him with heads bowed and eyes closed, but you've never come to a place to where you've actually relinquished your life to Jesus. You're probably a very good person, but before God who is holy, there's sin in your life that needs to be forgiven. And the only way to have it taken care of is when you trust in Jesus and Christ alone to do what he did on the cross and apply it to your sin in your life. The way we express that is when we pray and invite Jesus to come in and forgive us and to take over our lives to be our Savior and our Lord. And for those of you that have never done that, the invitation is wide open for this moment. We can't account for whether it will ever be extended again. We don't know what our lives hold. But at this moment, the, open do- the door is open for you to place your faith in Christ right where you sit. The other group are those of us who've made that choice. We've given our lives to Christ. And really, we need to determine, am I willing to be so surrendered that I would even go so far as to say I'm a part of the very movement of God, that he would use my life to impact others for his glory? And as we close in just a moment with our time of invitation, If you're ready and you're willing for God to use you that way, maybe your simple prayer can be, Lord, use even me. And so, God, we pray as we come to this place in the service, a time of decision, that we would follow your lead. And, God, that as we do, that only you would get honor and glory. And, Lord, that the the days and months and years to come would show that at least for this church, God, we are all in as one, looking to make a difference in this world for your glory. For it's in Jesus' name we pray.